Thank you for downloading this podcast from Emmanuel Church Lurgan. At Emmanuel, our vision is to help rewrite the story of Craigavon, Ireland and the nations with the good news of the Kingdom of God. We hope you enjoy listening to this message. so much Robbie that hard work that Robbie talked about in his prayer there actually got me some sunburn yesterday I took the the laptop outside into the garden for a couple hours and got some burnt knees from sitting but uh, it's nice that the sun has finally made an appearance with us here in in Northern Ireland and that um, feels like spring and summer as well on its way I just want to echo before I begin tonight everything that Robbie said about the Tabar conference our Emmanuel conference here Tabar is just a name that we give to all of the the wider stuff that goes on the manual connections and relationships that we have with other churches and agencies around the country but we want to give you preference because we are so so convinced it's going to be a strategic time for us as a church stepping into the more and a new chapter of all that God has for us as we continue to resource home base here but but your resource right around the nation and don't be I know the students are getting a bit of a discount buying you're getting a bargain at 35 pound because it includes all of your meals for the two days as well so that's two lunches and an evening meal so you know what Emmanuel if we're going to do food we're going to do it really really well so you're not going to go hungry um, during the conference either so I think it's a real steal at 35 pound and so I would love for you to invest in yourself and invest in what God's doing here in this house by either taking some time off work or by putting your hand in your pocket and paying for that and if you really can't pay for that please do come and talk to us we don't want money to be a hindrance to anybody coming to the conference if you feel that God really wants you to be there so please do come and speak to us and we can arrange something for that but um please do make it a massive massive um point of, of, of preference of trying to be there up here back on track for tonight and um, we're continuing tonight on our theme of the charges to Timothy we're looking at the second book of Timothy a letter that Paul wrote to him we've been so blessed by the first two weeks of this already Dave and Katie have brought such great words that have just deposited something new and fresh into our hearts and our souls that I know that we're still churning over and still asking God to bring revelation and even just implementation into our lives through that and before I start tonight, I just want to continue just by giving us a little bit of context for why Paul is writing this second letter to Timothy. Paul left his co-worker Timothy in the city of Ephesus to deal with some renegade leaders in the community of Jesus' followers. So some of them had went a wee bit ski with. They had just turned off the true north and were going off in a direction that wasn't true to the teachings of Jesus. Timothy wasn't able to do this. He wasn't able to bring them back into line and to right teaching, back to the true north. So Paul needed to go back to Ephesus himself. There he suffered a great deal of harm under Alexander, one of those leaders. And he was once again imprisoned and taken to Rome. It's just a common thing in, Paul, in, in uh, Paul's life. He was just imprisoned again and taken to Rome. But this time he wasn't expected to be released. He kind of knew in his heart that this was it for the last time, that he wasn't going to be released and he would probably be executed. So this is why he takes to pen this letter to his dear Timothy, to the one he calls his son, because he thinks, this is my last t- attempt. This is my, my last charge to Timothy. Paul wrote to Timothy and asked him to come to Rome quickly, concerned that winter might prevent him from getting there or his trial may, might reach conclusion sooner. And he really wanted to see Timothy, this devoted co-worker in the Lord. Ephesus had not gone the way that Paul and Timothy had expected. Those renegade leaders continued to oppose Paul and continued to spread false teaching and doctrine. And so this letter is to a discouraged and an intimidated Timothy. Timothy was young, faced with big challenges in Ephesus. The church going off on a a complete tangent of teaching false teaching, false doctrine, not following the true ways of Jesus. 
Paul had asked him to bring it back in line and he wasn't able to do that. And now Paul is in prison. So Paul, in his final days on earth, pens this letter to a discouraged and intimidated Timothy. Just to give you a little bit of a context of why it is happening. So basically it's a pep talk. It's a a pep talk from Paul to Timothy. If I could paraphrase it in Northern Ireland language, it would be this. When it gets tough, keep it on the, take it on the chin, keep going. When it gets tough, take it on the chin, keep going. That's how Paul would paraphrase it. We could take this whole book of 2 Timothy. It's a pep talk. It's almost like Paul got Timothy by the shoulders and eyeballed him and said, Timothy, pull yourself together. Pull yourself together. Take it on the chin. Tough times are going to come, but you have to keep going. Paul wasn't giving Timothy the chance to throw himself a pity party or shrink back from the call that was on his life and the job that he had to do. You wouldn't blame Timothy if you did. And he goes, I tried, Paul. It didn't work. I'm done. I'm finished. I don't even know who I'm supposed to be anymore. You know, you could have a completely identity crisis of what the call was on his life. Paul wasn't giving Timothy the chance to throw himself a pity party. He wasn't giving him the chance to shrink back. There was a call on his life. And Paul was reminding Timothy, it's time to take your stand once again. Paul was charging Timothy. A charge is to make someone officially responsible for doing something. So here's your reminding, Timothy, you have a responsibility. Take it on the chin. When tough times come, keep going because you have a responsibility. The charges were given both to encourage and challenge Timothy. Yes, in one hand, Paul had a deep heart for Timothy, a deep love for Timothy, and that's why he reaches out to him on an encouragement level. But he's also reaching out to him in a challenging level. That's how you know when you've got good people in your life, when there's both encouragement and challenge. He wasn't just there to give Timothy a pat on the back. He wasn't just there to tickle his ears and tell him it was all going to be okay, although he did do that, and he encouraged his heart. He was there to challenge Timothy to think, there's more And it's going to get tough again, Timothy, but you have to keep standing because there's a call on your life. So he speaks to Timothy on a personal level, but he also reminds him of the bigger picture. Timmy, get out of your, I'm like, kitty, Timmy. Timothy, get out of your wee pity party. Get out of the dark corner that you've placed yourself in. There's a way bigger picture going on here and you have to play your part in that. He's desperately trying to urge Timothy not to shy away and remember the call. Yes, Ephesus didn't go the way we planned it. Yes, I'm now in prison in Rome. But Timothy, there's a call on your life. This is not the time to shy away. This is the time to take front and center stage and the call that, I ha- that God has on your life. We've already looked at the first charges that Paul gave to Timothy in this context of him being intimidated and discouraged. And the first one, Dave, reminded of us with this. I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying of my hands for God give us a spirit not of fear but of power, love and self-control. And to sum up what David was saying, Paul was saying to Timothy, you have a gift. You have a gift. If I was sending you this letter tonight, I'd be saying, you have a gift. But here's the thing, it's your responsibility to use that gift. All of us have been gifted, but the responsibility of usage comes on our, us. If not, it's just going to be a gift that collects dust in the shelf of our life. We need to implement it. We need to be the one that exercises it. We need to be the one that steps into it. And here's what you need to do with that gift that God has given you. You need to fire it up, Timothy. 
You just fire it up. And Dave shared that picture of, of blowing on hot coals and seeing a reignition happen in that. We need the breath of God to come and breathe on the embers of the gifts that we have sometimes allowed to go dormant in our lives for them to be ignited again, for them to burn with a flame that is red hot and white hot for Jesus and his kingdom. And here's the thing, there's no fear in it. No fear in it. When God sets a fire in you, you know who you are and the gift that he has and the responsibility you have to operate in it, there's no fear. There's no place for fear. That fire in you is burning up all of those insecurities and all of those fears that you have. The second charge then Katie brought us just last week. Hold on to the pattern of wholesome teaching you learned from me. A pattern shaped by the faith and the love that you have in Christ Jesus. Here's what Katie was telling us. Holding fast is daily. I had this picture of almost like a tug of war. You know when you wrap a rope around your hand and you hold fast? We just don't do that once in our life. Daily we have to re-tighten our grip time and time again. Things daily, weekly, monthly will come at us and we need to remember to hold fast to the teaching that we have. We need to remember to hold fast. And Katie then encourages, what are we doing with the teaching and the truth that you have received? And so if you're holding fast to the teaching and the truth, what also are you doing with it in response? How are you giving it away? Because she encouraged us, the way to keep hope alive is to pass truth down. And so who are you passing the hope, the good news that is in with you? Who are you passing that down to? And so there are the first two charges that Paul gave to Timothy in his intimidated and discouraged state. And tonight we're looking at the third charge. And this is what it says. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Sure in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since its aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So it's quite a long passage. There's probably a few charges within this one statement alone. So that's why we would probably even challenge about the amount of charges that Timothy is is receiving from Paul. But tonight he starts with this one. He starts with the grace. My child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Grace, by definition, is the divine help, the unmerited gift that comes from God. Resting in the grace, the unmerited favor of God towards us that is in Christ Jesus. We do not deserve the love and goodness that is freely and unconditionally given from heaven. All we can do is receive it. Grace is an unmerited gift that each of us know in our lives. It is the favor of God towards us in Christ Jesus. This is what grace means. And Paul knew grace more than anyone, as we see from his conversion on the road to Damascus. Here's what it reads in Acts. Paul was formerly known as Saul. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any, of the, any there who belonged to the way, 
whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice said to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. He replied, now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. So here we have Saul, he will soon become Paul. But Saul is in a one-man crusade to wipe out Christianity. He's on a one-man crusade. He's actually asked, can you send me to the synagogues in Damascus so that if I find any followers of the way, any followers of Jesus, that I can um, imprison them. It's right at that point, on the darkest day it seems for Christianity, on this one-man's crusade that God breaks in with a bright light. That's grace. The bright light that shines in the darkness and Saul gets a name change. Saul becomes Paul. The persecutor becomes the one who proclaims the good news. He goes from trying to extinguish the fire of Jesus to being the one that ignites it right across the nations. So he goes from Saul to Paul, persecuting to proclaiming, extinguishing to igniting. Only grace can do that. Only grace can do that. Only grace can take a murderer who's trying to kill the Christians, and actually become him a le- make him a leader amongst them. Actually charging him to bring it to the Gentiles. Only grace can do that. And so when Paul is telling Timothy to be strengthened by the grace, no one knows grace more than Paul. Grace is the source of our salvation. And here's the thing. No one is beyond grace. If grace was able to find Paul on a donkey in the road to Damascus, he's going to find you here in Lurgan or Craigavon, wherever you might be. Grace has a way of finding us out. In our darkest day, that bright light comes and God says, there's a way. Follow me. No one is beyond grace. You're never too bad. You're never too far. You've never done too much. Grace will find you. It is the source of our salvation. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God and not a result of works so that no one may boast. Not one of us in this room tonight have a boast in anything other than Jesus Christ and the unmerited grace and favor that he has poured into us. It's our only boast. It's the only reason I stand here tonight is by the grace of God. I have nothing else to boast in. All I can boast in is that I am who he says I am. That's my boast because of grace. But Paul knew that grace is the source of our salvation, but Paul also knew knew it was grace that sustains us. You see, we start in grace, we stand in grace, we are strengthened in grace. We start in grace, we stand in grace, and we are strengthened in grace. Through him, we also have attained access by faith into the grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Here's the thing. There is never a moment in our lives that we don't need the grace of God to enable us. Not one moment. Not one second that we do not need the grace of God to enable us. In our everyday gone about life, from the moment that we're awake to the moments that we're sleeping, every second of every hour of every day, there's never a moment in our lives that we don't need the grace of God to enable us. You see, grace can't just be about the forgiveness of sins. Otherwise, Jesus would never have needed it. 
But Philippians 2 tells us that he stripped himself of all the fine privileges and walked on earth as a human being. He therefore needed the grace of God to function to do all that he did. And if Jesus needed grace, then how much more do I need grace to go about my everyday life? Luke 2 40 states that as a young boy, the grace was on God and was on, or the grace of God was on Jesus. And the child grew and became strong, and he was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. Jesus received grace from God, not for salvation, but to empower him to live the life he did. Therefore, grace, while significant in our lives for salvation, is even more vital for living the fullness of life God has for us. We start in grace. We stand in grace. We're strengthened by grace. It even more is vital for the living, the fullness of life that God has for us. It is the power for the Christian daily life. We feel weak, limited, inconsistent. Christ is eternal and invincible. That is grace. In our weak, limited, and inconsistent selves, grace never changes. And we sing a lot about how amazing grace is. Because truly it is. It's grace that we start in. It's grace that we stand on. And it's grace that sustains us, don't we? We sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm fine. Was blind, but now I see. It was grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear. The hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils and snares, we have already come. T'was grace that brought us safe thus far, and it's grace will lead us home. We start in grace, we stand on grace, and we are sustained by grace. So now that we are saved, fullness of life means much more than simply praying and reading our Bibles. We are saved to live like Jesus. Grace gives us the ability to, even in our weakness, grace gives us the ability to live like Jesus God refers to his grace as his power. My grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I'm glad to boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ can work through me. God refers to his grace as his power. Second Peter builds on this. God's empowerment gives us the ability to go beyond our natural ability. May God give you more and more grace and peace as you grow in your knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of marvelous glory and excellence. It gives us the power to live like Jesus did. We couldn't do it by ourselves. We wouldn't get very far. And so God doesn't introduce grace just as forgiveness of sins or a free gift or, or just our salvation, all of which they are. He introduces it as the empowering nature of Christ. Grace empowers us. And he also graces each one of us differently. Just like salvation, no one is overlooked or forgotten or beyond, but he's given each one of us a gift or a grace, and everyone gets to play. Just like salvation, it has no boundaries, it has no borders. No one gets overlooked or forgotten or is beyond the gifts that God has given. We have different gifts according to the grace given to us. 
If a man's gift is prophecy, let him use it in the, in the proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is in contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. This is the list of only seven gifts. There are many more others mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4. But here is what we're saying. God has given us gifts, each and every one of them. It's by the grace of God. There's a grace on your life. God has graced each and every one of them. And here's the other thing. Let him use it. These gifts must be used. God has given us gifts, but they must be used. It's our responsibility. This is what Paul is charging Timothy with. You have a gift but it's your responsibility. They must be used. This is why Paul is telling Timothy to stay strong in the grace. There is a grace on Timothy's life to strengthen, encourage, and build up the church through teaching. That is a grace that is on Timothy's life. And sometimes it takes other people to remind us of the giftings and the graces that are on our lives. That's why it's important that we have people like Paul's in our lives that say, in the days that we forget it, God has called you and he's graced you for such a time as this. Paul knew what it was like to receive the strength of God. That's why he declares, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in our weakness, even on our weakest day. And he could encourage Timothy like this because of his own experience. Paul is encouraging Timothy by staying strong in the grace because he's speaking from a place of his own experience. He knows that we need to remain in the grace and the strength of God. God is always there to give us strength. He gives power to the weak and to those who have no might, he increases strength. Isaiah 40 says this, he gives strength to the weary, increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary. Even young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. God makes the resource of his strength available to us. God makes the resource of his strength available to us. And here's what it says in Ephesians 6, 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Here's the thing. It does not come when we sit back passively and suppose that God will simply pour it into us. He brings strength to us as we seek him and rely on him instead of our own strength. God... It does not come to us as we sit back passively and suppose that God will simply pour it into us. He brings his strength to us as we seek him, rely on him instead of our own strength. That's why we need to put on the full armor of God. God's give us the armor. It's our, it's our responsibility to put it on. As we seek him, rely on him instead of our own strength. So here's the thing. You're saved by grace through salvation. You're saved by grace through salvation. You're called to grace through the gifts. You're called by grace through the gifts that God has given you. There's a call on your life. But you're sustained by grace. There's a strength that comes for everyday living through the grace. We start in grace. We stand in grace. And we are strengthened in grace. And so my charge to you, like Paul to Timothy, is be strong. Be strengthened in the grace 
And from that place, allow grace to overflow, to live like Jesus. Allow the grace to overflow, to live like Jesus. There's a call on your life that only you can fulfill, and you are more than able. There's a call on your life that only you can fulfill, and you're more than able. Overflow into the lives of others. Jesus did this by discipling. It is one of the ways that Jesus did this. He allowed the grace to overflow out of his life through the way of discipling. And that is what Paul is charging Timothy to do in the next part of the thing, which is entrust. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust a faithful men who are able to teach also. Trust by definition means to assign the responsibility for doing something to someone or put something into someone's care or protection. That's what it means to entrust. You see, Paul gave Timothy this ministry not for him to keep, but for him to pass on to others. You know, Paul didn't invest all of this time with Timothy, teaching and showing him and modeling for him just to keep it to himself, but for him to pass it on to others. This is why he's telling them to keep strong in the grace that you may live like Jesus and overflow into the lives of others by passing on this message that I have passed on to you. But he also charges him that those whom he has trained must also be given the job to teach others. What Paul's trying to start here is a chain reaction. That's what discipleship is. Disciples who make disciples. I become a disciple. I make a disciple. That person makes a disciple. Paul to Timothy. Timothy to faithful men. Faithful men to others. And so on, the chain reaction begins. This is what Paul is trying to set in motion here. There's a chain reaction when it comes to discipleship. Paul to Timothy, Timothy to faithful men, faithful men to others. Yes, the call of discipleship is following Jesus, taking up our cross and following him, believing, praying, giving, loving, and serving. But it's also the call to make disciples. It's also the call to make disciples. You know what this is called? It's called the Great Commission. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. You see, discipleship doesn't just mean evangelism and conversion. It begins there, but it doesn't end there. So discipleship doesn't just mean evangelism and conversion. It begins there, but it doesn't end there. The Great Commission goes on to say to baptize people. But it also says, it goes on to say, teach them to observe all that I have commanded. So often we get the part right about, about salvation and conversion. And we get about the baptizing, but we actually forget the bit that says, teach them all that we have been taught. The Great Commission goes on to say, I serve all that I have commanded. And here's the thing, that doesn't happen in a moment. Yes, salvation and baptism happen in a moment. But teaching them to serve all that I have commanded doesn't happen in a moment. It's not an event, it's a process. It's not an event, it's a process. Making disciples has a clear event at the beginning and then unfolds into an involved and extended time-consuming process. It starts with a clear event at the beginning. That moment that someone opens their life up to Jesus, there's a clear event at the beginning, but then it unfolds into an involved, extended, and time-consuming process. See, the reason Jesus chose 12 and really committed to three out of the 12 is discipleship cannot be mass-produced. 
Discipleship cannot be mass produced. Conferences and even Sundays aren't always the answer. You can't mass produce discipleship. You can't all just rock up to a bar conference and we're all going to be magically become disciples. Discipleship cannot be mass produced. Conferences and even Sundays aren't always the answer. Helpful, yes. Necessary, yes. But they're not always the answer. Discipleship can't be mass produced. If Jesus chose 12, then Phil and Dave aren't going to manage much more. Not to be little them. It takes us all. It takes us all. So if Jesus chose 12, there's a reason for that. It can't be mass produced. And that's why we're really pushing life groups, threes and twelves, because this can't be mass produced. It has to be done in close relationship. And that's why there's an urgency for all of us to entrust and impart into others and start this cycle, to start the chain reaction here in Emmanuel Church. There's an urgency. I don't even say that lightly. There is an urgency. If Jesus could only invest in 12 and we are a church of six or 700, then it takes all of us to entrust and impart into others to start this chain reaction happening here in Emmanuel. Discipleship making is intentionally and relationally investing in the spiritual growth and maturity of a few disciples. Intentionally and relationally investing in the spiritual growth and maturity of a few disciples. Jesus was willing to bless the masses, but what drove his ministry was investing in the few who would lead the church after his redemptive work was accomplished and he returned to the Father. Jesus did the mass thing. He fed the 5,000. You know, he taught on the shores of the of Sea of Galilee. He done all of that. But he realized what really drove his ministry was invested in the few that would lead the church after his redemptive work was accomplished and we returned to the Father. And there's actually something really funny about this. The man who, who is charging Timothy with the task of entrusting is also the man that's in prison for doing the very thing he asked him to do. Could you imagine Timothy reading this letter? You know, Timothy, could you entrust this to faithful men? He's like, not a chance, Paul. I got you in prison in Rome. I'm not doing it. There's almost something humorous in us that this, most of this charge is actually telling Timothy to do the thing that got Paul into prison. But here's the thing. There's a cost to discipleship. Verse 3 says, sure in the suffering as a good soldier, soldier of Christ Jesus. There's a cost to discipleship. Paul wasn't in prison just for being a disciple. If he had just loved Jesus and kept it to himself, he would have got into a whole lot less trouble. Paul had just loved Jesus and kept it to himself. He would have got into a lot less trouble. What got him into the most trouble was making disciples. It was a spreading. It was a proclamation. It was entrusting the faithful men and women. Our lives aren't necessarily at risk due to discipleship, but there is a cost. We're not going to be thrown into prison. Our near death is not going to be something we will experience, but there is a cost. And here's the thing. Many of us understand the cost to discipleship, but we haven't embraced it. Most of us know the cost to really intentionally invest in someone and trust to someone, but we haven't embraced them. And so we're not hiding. We're not sugarcoating how costly discipleship making is. We're not painting you a really rosy picture of how lovely it is to always disciple people. We're not trying to sugarcoat it or hide it. There is a cost to that. Training those disciples to then disciple others who disciple others becomes at a cost. But here what I love what Paul says. So I will very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. So I will very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. Paul knew that this chain reaction of discipleship needed to happen if this church had a future. And so he says, I will gladly spend all that I am and all that I have to make sure this happens. Paul's even counting it a privilege. 
he's pretty much left himself in poverty, but he goes, it's a privilege to do it. I will gladly, with a glad heart, spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. The cost for us is giving, isn't it? Giving of ourselves, of our time, and of our comfort. It's about giving. But remember this. And I've been a constant example of how you can help those in need by working hard. You should remember the words of our Lord Jesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. That's why Paul had a glad heart when he said that last statement. Because he knows it was more blessed to give than it is to receive. Yes, it will cost us our giving of our time, ourselves, and our comfort. But it's more blessed. That's why Paul had a glad heart. It is more blessed. And so I challenge you tonight or this week, take the initiative. Have that potentially awkward conversation with someone about getting together to regularly read the Bible and pray. Take the initiative. Have that potentially awkward conversation about getting together regularly to read the Bible and pray. And it might feel awkward, but here's the thing. It shouldn't be awkward. We're family. It shouldn't be awkward. Yes, I know it feels awkward, but it shouldn't be. It should be the most natural thing to us in the world. Gathering as twos and threes, gathering at homes around meals, opening God's word, sharing it together. It should be natural to us. This should be our norm. And here's the thing. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't need to have everything figured out. We're journeying this together. Don't exclude yourself as someone who can entrust to faithful men and women. We all have something to give. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't need to have everything figured out. And this is a call on our lives. And my hope that is tonight, that somehow might serve as a catalyst for us to do what we already know we should do, don't we? We already know we should be discipling. We should be entrusting. And in some ways we want to do it. There's a deep longing in all of us to be in accountable and committed relationships. You know, covenanting ourselves and one another saying, I've got your back in the good days and the bad days. But we simply have under aren't because everything in life seems too busy for life on life disciple making. So I hope this serves a catalyst for us to do what we already know we should do. And in some ways want to do. But simply have under aren't because everything in life seems far too busy for life on life disciple making. But don't start the process without counting the cost. Paul reinforces this by giving Timmy three illustrations to mull over just as we come into land tonight. He gives these three pictures. The first one is of a soldier. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. For a soldier, there was no distractions. There was no time to waste. We live in an age of distraction. We are always going for the new and the shiny and the big, aren't we? It's seen in our, what we buy. We need the, new, the newest and the biggest and the shiniest iPhone that we can find. We need the newest and the biggest and the shiniest car that we can get. It's in our wardrobe that we change seasonally. We live in an age of distraction to the new and the big and the shiny. But just like a soldier, there's no time for distractions. There's no time to waste. This is a great example. As the Roman soldiers and the signs of the emperor were all around them, as Paul writes this, this was a really great example to be writing about. There were soldiers. Rome had pretty much conquered everywhere. The Roman emperor was, and the signs of the Roman emperor were everywhere to be found. It's even likely that as Paul was chained to a soldier as he wrote this letter. It's fairly likely that Paul was chained to a Roman soldier as he wrote this letter. At least stand on guard over him, if not chained to him. He saw how those soldiers acted and how they obeyed their commanding officers. 
Paul would have watched and observed this. He would have knew how they responded to their commanding officers. Paul knew that this is how a Christian must act towards the Lord. We need to keep our mission, the Great Commission, in mind. No distractions, no time to waste. There's nothing new and big and shiny coming. The Great Commission still stands. That is our mission. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded to you. These are the final words of Jesus. We need to be obedient to them. We need to be so, so obedient to him. The second picture then Paul gives is an athlete. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The point here is clear, just like the last one. An athlete can't make up the rules as he pleases. He must complete according to the rules if he wants to receive the crown. Here's the thing, no shortcuts. There's no cutting corners. You know, if someone's running the track, which would have been really common in those days in the Roman Empire, running track, maybe you did it at the school sports stage, you know, the 800 meters, and you're lapping three or four times around the track. There's no shortcuts. There's no cutting corners if you want to get the crown. You have to run the track that God has laid out for you. There needs to be perseverance. And energy is required. So as we think of this in light of discipleship, the reason we need to be a soldier is we need to remember the mission in our lives is the Great Commission. Not the next new, big, shiny thing. It's always been the old news of the Great Commission. But we also need to be like the athlete and realize that there's no cutting corners and there's no shortcuts in this process. There needs to be perseverance and there needs to be energy required. It might require early mornings and late nights. Like an athlete who has a training regime, taking the time to think through the plan, how often will we meet? Where will we meet? What if, any, what, if anything, will we study together? How long will the commitment be? And what areas do we need to learn and grow together? We need a regime. Just like an athlete, if they're going to run to win the prize, we need a regime. We need to ask the questions, how often will we meet? Where will we meet? If we're going to study something, what will it be? How long is this commitment? It doesn't need to be for life. It could be for a season. And in what areas does this person need to learn and grow? It's like another lap of the track, but it's worth it. You see, it needs to be personal, intentional, relational. It's all about depth. It's about another lap of the track, another lap of the track, another meeting, another conversation, another coffee, another breakfast. It's another lap of the track. But here, think it's worth it because there's a prize at the end. There's a crown. The athlete is not crowned unless he completes. But if he competes with all the rules intact, there is a crown to be had. Paul says in Corinthians, Do you not know that in the race, all runners run the race, but only one runs to get the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Guys, let's be those who run to get the prize. Let's get the crown at the end. Let's run in such a way with each other in the place of disciple and that we all get the prize. We all get the the prize, run the race, get the prize, run the track that's led out before you. And then the final picture is this of the farmer. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. And unlike the soldier and the athlete, there's nothing glamorous about the work a farmer does. It's often tedious and boring and unexciting. Sorry if you're a farmer, that sounds awful. The nation's best farmer really isn't a celebrity, but he must work just as hard all the same. It takes time to plow the field, time to plant, 
time to water, time to fertilize, time to harvest. So with disciple making, it's not one meeting, but often a year's worth of regular meetings. It takes time, just like it takes time to plow the field, time to plant, time to water, time to fertilize, time to harvest. So with disciple making, it's not one meeting, but often a year's worth of regular meetings, which requires patience. We need patience for the process of disciple making. But here's the thing, if you labor, you will see fruit. If you labor, there will see fruit. But here's the thing, there might be no recognition. Being a really good disciple, really investing in a small group probably isn't going to get you the stage or the platform or a new book deal or allow you to release a shiny new Christian CD. There's probably little recognition in it. It's done through private interactions. But here, there will be a harvest and there will be fruit. Crops take time, but there will be a harvest. And maybe you're saying, Tash, you're not really painting a very good picture of this discipleship thing. I know you're urging us to be part of it, but here seems like a lot of hard work, you know, to be the soldier, to be the athlete, to be the farmer. But in saying all of this, there is a deep joy had to be had in the disciple-making process. The soldier pleases the commander, the athlete wins the race, the farmer enjoys the harvest. The soldier pleases his commander, the athlete wins the race, the farmer enjoys the harvest. And Paul writes this in Thessalonians, after all, what gives us hope and joy and what will be our pride reward and crying as we stand before our Lord Jesus when he returns? It is you. Yes, you are our pride and joy. Why? Because he invested, he entrusted the faithful men and women who became his pride and joy. Paul is the one that is writing about the cost of disciple making, but he knows the one that there's deep joy in it as well. I imagine Phil would say the same over this church. After all, what gives us hope and joy and what will be our proud reward and crown as we stand before our Lord Jesus and when he returns is you. Yes, you are our pride and our joy. It's not easy. It's hard work, but it's deeply, deeply rewarding. It's deeply, deeply rewarding. But because it's hard work, that's why we need to do it in the grace of God. That's why Paul started with keep strong in the grace, be strengthened in the grace. He knew Timothy would need a lot of grace to start the chain reaction of the discipleship process. And so that's why we continue to start in grace, stand in grace, and are strengthened in grace. It's the grace of God in our lives that overflows into others, into making disciples. And so as we close tonight, I would just love the band just to come up. We're going to sing in a little minute. But just before we do that, I don't know where you find yourselves. Maybe you've heard Dave talk about discipleship before. Maybe you've heard it from church. I don't know if you're ready to commit to a a three or a 12 or a life group. I really hope that you would. But here's the thing tonight. We all need a sure in the grace. We all need a sure in the grace. And so what I would love for us tonight is to continue and to start investing in one another by declaring the grace over each other's lives. This verse here is often used, um, yes, this verse here is often used at the end of traditional churches. They finish with the grace. And they'll turn to one another and they say, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore. And here's the thing, we need a chain reaction to start in our church of disciple making, but it starts in the place of grace. 
It starts by realizing that we start in grace, we stand in grace, and we are strengthened by grace. And so I would love for us to declare this before we sing tonight over each other's lives. So I'd love us to stand. Could we all stand? And it might be one of those potentially awkward moments that we talked about before. But what I would love for you to do is to turn and to someone beside you and to two or three people beside you. And I would love for you to, to shake their hand, look them in the eye and say, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore. But here's the thing. We're here to give, but we're also here to receive tonight. And so I want that person to say it back to you. And I'd love for us to do that to two or three people. Just look at them, shake their hand, look them in the eye and declare this grace over them tonight. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore. Let's give and let's receive that blessing tonight. Let's give it to the people around us. Thank you so much for doing that. Let's all receive this tonight. Let's all be those who give this tonight. But let's be those, as we've given and received this blessing tonight, let's be those who start a chain reaction of disciple making in this house. And trust the faithful men and women. And trust the faithful boys and girls. Let's see a chain reaction of discipleship making in our church. But let's worship. Let's worship to the one who pours out his grace on us. The reason, the one who we start in grace, we stand in grace and are strengthened in grace. The one who saves us by his grace, who calls us by his grace and sustains us by his grace. And so my prayer tonight is this. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore. Amen. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. For more information about our church and all that we do, please visit our website at emmanuel-church.co.uk.